Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Hey listeners, and welcome back. Um, Today we're going to talk about um, another Louisiana serial killer. Um, I promise we're going to cover serial killers who aren't from Louisiana at some point. But um, I just wanted to cover this guy because um, he's not talked about very much. And he's different than any other serial killer I've ever read about. So um, I'm just going to jump in right here and say that my list of cases is like very Louisiana. <laughs> um, and it just keeps growing. Like, and a lot of people just keep rec- like suggesting mm-hmm. more Louisiana cases. So I'm, not, I'm apologizing in advance. Yeah, so um, at some point this might turn into the Louisiana murder podcast. Yes. Um, Anyway, today we're going to talk about Ronald Dominique, who was a serial killer from Houma, Louisiana, and he targeted, he, well, I don't want to say only, but he targeted gay men. I don't want to miss, mostly gay men? Yeah, he targeted mostly gay men, and he's often referred to as the Bayou serial killer. Um... So, he's likely the worst serial killer that you've never heard of. Interesting. Like, he was not talked about. Like I said before, he was not talked about mm-hmm. very much. There I've never heard of him. Really? Nope. See, there was not very much. And he's from up the road. <laughs> up the road. Up the road. Up the road, because he's from Homa. <laughs> yeah. There was not very much, you know, coverage of him, media coverage of him, and We'll kind of get into that. So a can I? Later. So define serial killer. I know in Judith Neely and Alvin Neely's case, you kind of touched on that. But are we talking tens, twenties, twenties, twenties? Okay, number yes. of victims. Number of victims. Yes. Okay. Twenty. So 20, he's not just a little chump. No. Uh, serial Twenty. Killer. Twenty-three victims, 20, to be 20. exact. So that's what I don't understand. How this was it, not right. That's what I was getting at. How he's not bigger. I don't want to say bigger. That sounds bad. But Publicized. Right. How he's... More people don't know about him because 23 victims is a staggering amount. Yeah, that's... Um, was that more than Derek Todd Lee? Yes. Derek Todd Lee has seven. Con- confirmed. Seven confirmed. That's almost as much as Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy has, well, allegedly right. 30, 30 victims. So and that's almost is, as many as Ted Bundy. You know, he's, he's a household name. Is this a white man or a black man? Just white. White? Mm-hmm. Older white man. Okay. Yeah. So just trying to like compare stats. Right. So, you know, it's been posted in several places that uh, because he targeted members of the gay community, um, you know, many of whom were homeless, that he didn't attract the same type of notoriety as other infamous serial killers. You know, like we already talked about Bundy. Uh, like John Wayne Gacy or Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, because he was murdering gay men. So, so was this a hate crime type thing, or is no, was he I, homosexual? He was he was homosexual. Okay, but I don't think so. I don't think it was a hate crime. Right, but so I think if if it would have been a hate crime, I feel like it would have been more publicized. Yes, but, and um, probably back when he committed these crimes. Uh, homosexuality was not uh, like as big as it is now. Mm-hmm. He was arrested in two thousand six. What? Mm-hmm. 
that was a new millennium. Right. You know, like, right. I don't I feel like find... at, at that time, homosexuality was more accepted than, uh, than in, like, say, the 70s. A little. The I mean, probably a tad, but not like Not it like now. it is now, no. right. Um, so, I got a lot of the information that I needed to do this episode from a documentary about Ronald Dominique. Uh, it's called Bayou Blue. And it's, it's really interesting. So, um, if you guys have time, it's available on Amazon Prime Video mm-hmm. for free. Um, was that just like a two-hour? Was it episodes? It was, um, no, it was a one documentary. I think it was like an hour and a half, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, so it was really interesting. It, I got a lot of information from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just say this. The accents in this documentary are amazing. I mean, it's it's Homa. I love Bayou. Yeah, accent. it's like Homa down the Bayou. Like, like one of my friends on Snapchat. I, like, I comment every time. I'm like, oh my god, I love your accent. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, I felt like that's what my dad sounds like. Yes, accurate, accurate, <laughs> super Cajun, and that's honestly anybody that's not from Louisiana. That's probably what you think we sound. We like. all sound like. Yeah, you think we, we all yeah. sound mm-hmm. like that. So, but it is. It's very. It's very interesting and very well done. I felt like um so definitely check that out um <clears throat> so i just want to talk just like a brief snippet about um ronald dominique's background so he was born on january 9th 1964 in thibodeau louisiana um which is a small bayou town between new orleans and baton rouge um if anybody knows anything about louisiana thibodeau is where nichols university is and swamp people right that area Pierre Park, kind yeah, of, which yeah. is close. Yeah, Pierre Park. But if you guys have uh, ever watched Swamp People, that's their people. <laughs> right. Um, so he attended, Dominique attended Thibodeau High School, where he was involved in the Glee Club and sang in the chorus. Um, he was reportedly bullied as a teenager because he was short, overweight, and homosexual. Um, although he never admitted he was gay, you know, in high school, um, I think people just knew mm-hmm. um but even after growing up dominique struggled to make friends it was known for doing quote bad unquote drag performances at backwoods gay bars he was probably um, he was trying socially to, awkward yeah and he was trying to struggling to fit in have i sent you a picture of this guy no um let me send you a picture of him right now um so you can see exactly what he looks like and maybe you can understand why he didn't fit in oh yeah yeah we'll, we'll post these pictures on our social media um because we're going to talk a, lo- a good bit about a lot of these pictures so looking at it i feel like i mean this is a dmv photo clearly mm-hmm. um looks right. like he was struggling to know who he was himself mm-hmm. i feel like that's fair that's probably fair yeah. I say it like I know him, but, you know. I mean, sometimes you feel like you Just a shot in the dark here. Right. Um, now I want to talk a little bit about his criminal history, because he has quite a criminal, quite quite the extensive history. Rapture. Yeah. Um, so, between 1985 and 2002, um, you know, like we just said, he amassed quite the rap sheet. Um, charges against him range from telephone harassment to drunk driving to rape. So, like, not one type of crime, usually. Right. He kind of ran the gamut. Yeah. Like, right. usually um, criminals 
kind of stick to they're either you know petty theft or you know somebody who's going to constantly shoplift isn't going to murder somebody i mean and they might but usually well, Lee started off shoplifting. yeah true but like i guess he progressed though. with my experience i feel like yeah. the same people did the same type of mm-hmm. things you know mm-hmm. yeah old habits die hard yep um, so, in June of 1985, Dominique was charged with telephone harassment, um, and he pled guilty and paid a fine. That's um, impressive, because as many of um, 911 calls as we got for 14285, which is um, annoying or obscene telephone calls, nobody ever got charged. Really? Like, they just... It's kind of one of those petty things, you know? It's like... And do you have pr- proof? Really? Absolutely. I mean... Well, like, the normal layperson is not going to have a recorder on their phone. Is, no, but a text, me- text message, too, oh, that okay. still falls under it. Um, well, not in the 80s, but... <laughs> right, but, um, you know, if I have 37 missed calls from one person... Hmm. But then again... Where have one... we seen that before? <sighs> Are you throwing shade? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Awkward. Um, so... <laughs> In May of 1994, he was arrested and charged while speeding and driving under the influence. So, by August of 1996, um, Dominique's crimes had escalated, and he was arrested on suspicion of rape after a man escaped from his window and went to the neighbor's house screaming that he was raped and almost killed. Well then. Yeah. Eventually, Dominique was charged with forcible rape, and booked on a $100,000 bond. However, when the case went to court in November of that year, November of 1996, um, the case was dropped because they could not find the victim. I feel and like so it begins. Yeah, I feel like that happens a lot. Like in rape cases, either the victim originally comes forward, but then when it comes down to it, they don't want to testify, or they just fall off the face of the planet. Like they can't find them. And in this specific case. They didn't, it doesn't say, but, like, that man could have been, um, straight. Oh, right. So maybe he was kind of ashamed. Could have been heterosexual. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. Um, maybe he, he was ashamed of the situation, right. you know? He didn't want to right. face it. So, even after going to jail for rape and escaping jail time, you know, um, he continued his life of crime. Um, so in May of 2000, he pled guilty to disturbing the peace and a little less than two years later in February of 2002, he was arrested on suspicion of assault after he assaulted a woman at a Mardi Gras parade. According to Dominique, I feel like that's not, that's real common, but whatever. Yeah. According to Dominique, the woman hit her baby in the parking lot. So he slapped her across the face. You know, I can say I'd probably do the same, but he could be lying, too, so. Yeah. Um, he was only sentenced to probation. I mean, I'm all for letting people, you know, discipline their kids. Oh, yeah. But, There's I mean, if you're gonna slap a baby in the face, that's kind of... In public. In public, right? You must not really give a... Right. Doot. Okay, now we're gonna talk about Ronald Dominique's victims. Ronald Dominique eventually confessed to killing 23 men... Between the ages of 16 and 46, uh, between 1997 and 2006. So what is that? Nine years? He killed 23 people in nine years. Wow. And as I said before, he generally targeted gay men, uh, most of whom led high-risk lifestyles, including drug use, prostitution, 
um, or they were homeless, but that wasn't always the case. It wasn't? No, not all the time. Um, and we'll get more into that. Um, during his confession, Dominique told <gasps> authorities... Confession? Mm-hmm. Yes! Yes. He told authorities that his experience with the rape charge in 1996 that we talked about, mm-hmm. um, that made him determine that he was not going to go back to jail. So, uh, newsflash. Yeah. So, he said that he murdered the men because he didn't want to get caught and sent back to jail. So, his initial M.O. was rape? Yes. And because he didn't want to go to jail for rape, he's just going to slaughter somebody or rape. I don't. I mean, kill. I don't know yeah. his method, but... I use the word slaughter just as a general right. murder term. Yes. But that was his. Essentially, yeah. 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 So, um, in his confession, he went on to state that he targeted men who seemed desperate. You know, like I already said, drug addicts, prostitutes, and the homeless. And, other than seeing des- seeming desperate, they were people who probably their families wouldn't be looking for them. Not all of them, though. Like, right, a but lot most of, of A lot of them, well, I don't want to say a lot of them. Um, there was a couple families that were interviewed in that documentary that I watched. But a couple out of 23, yeah, you know? Yeah, Like, I really don't have much on a lot of these guys. So, I mean, maybe you are right. Maybe it was just, like, nobody was really Kind of like them. Tiffany Witten. She was, she lived that lifestyle. So, her, you know, they didn't really, they weren't really alarmed when they couldn't find her. Yeah, and that was a few months later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. So, um, let's see, he also said that he would frequent gay bars and offer, uh, men money for their companionship, and, um, if he thought that guy was straight, you know, he would, uh, show them a picture of a woman that he said was his wife, and, uh, propose that they have a threesome. What? Right. But once he lured the men home, uh, he would bring out rope or restraints, telling them that it was a part of a sex game. Um, and once the victim was bound, he would rape, then strangle or smother his victims. Um, okay. Right. Um, so, he, like, he kind of lied to them saying, once you're, you're restrained, then the woman will join? Right. Okay. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about his ruse um, mm-hmm. a little bit further on in the episode. Um, but um, he would dump the bodies in sugarcane fields ditches, small bayous, and it was across several parishes in southeast Louisiana. Um, There's, like, a a good bit of, like, parishes, uh, and I'm going to talk about that, too, Mm -hmm. where they were found. Um, So, he also went on to tell investigators that if they refused, the men refused to be tied up, he would let them leave his home unharmed. That's a lot of people that, excuse me, wanted to be tied up. Or agreed to be tied up, right. Um, <clears throat> the victims' bodies were found in seven different parishes across South Louisiana. Jesus. Um, all were bound and had been murdered in very similar ways. Um, and now, because he had so many victims, um, and I really didn't find all that much on all of them. Like, mm-hmm. like you said, maybe it was people, they led that high-risk lifestyle, so people weren't looking for them or missing them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and like I said, not all of them live that high-risk lifestyle. There were a few outliers in there that had actual families that were, you know, looking for them. But, um, like I said, because he has so many, we can't talk about all of them in detail, but I wanted to at least name every victim. 
Um, and then I have a detail, like I have, like I said, I have details for a few of them, and most of those details came from the Bayou Blue documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when you say they were dumped in these parishes, they weren't necessarily from those parishes, right? Were they mainly from Homa Thibodeau area? A lot of them were, yeah. So it was just at that point, it appeared to be missing persons. Right. So they just had a string of missing people in... Mm-hmm. And eventually authorities caught on, but we'll get there. Okay. Um, you know how I do. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go chronologically. <clears throat> so victim number one, David Mitchell was 19 years old, and his body was found in St. Charles Parish in July of 1997. Um, hello. Right. right next door to where I grew up. Right. That's what... 40 minutes to an hour from where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he was a black male. Um, victim number two, his name was Gary Pierre. He was 20 years old. His body was also found in St. Charles Parish in December of 97. So, what, six months? Five. Five, five months after David's body was found. He was also a black male. Um, victim number three was Larry Ranson. He was 38 years old, also found in St. Charles Parish in July of 1998. You gotta switch up your stuff, dude. You're gonna catch on to you. Right. So, July of 1998, and he was also a black male. Victim number four, um, this one I have a little bit of information on. Um, his name was Oliver LeBanks, and he was 27 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on October 5th, 1998, um, detectives were notified that a body was found in Metairie near the interstate. So that's Jefferson Parish, if we're going by parishes. Um, the body turned out to be that of 27-year-old Oliver LeBanks. Um, Oliver was found without his shoes. So keeping with his pattern, Oliver was also a black male. And um, detectives traced Oliver uh, through his brother back to a gay bar in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Um, so they didn't really say much else about that, you know, just that they, they traced him to a gay bar. And I think that's kind of, um, people like his last known whereabouts. Right. Yeah. And people, I think might have mentioned that Ronald was there. I don't really know, but he did. But I mean, he, he confessed, he confessed to, to everything. Yeah. People in gay bars. So, right. So, um, victims five through 12, I don't really have much on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just going to list them. Um, so, 16-year-old Joseph Brown. 16. He's the youngest, oh right? Oh, my goodness. Um, he was found in Kenner in Jefferson Parish in October of 1998. He was also a black male. Um, then Bruce Williams, who was 18, was found a month later in November of 1998, also in Jefferson Parish. And he was also a black male. Manuel Reed was 21 years old and found in May of 1999 in Kenner in Jefferson Parish, black male. Angel Miha was 34 years old. He was found in June of 1999, um, also in Kenner, Jefferson Parish, and also a black male. So clearly he had a type at that point. Right. He, and I will get, spoiler, he will stray from this okay. a little bit eventually, but not much. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But So victim number nine was Mitchell Johnson, who is 34 years old. 
and he his body was found in Metairie as well in Metairie in Jefferson Parish in August of 1999. Um, he was also a black male. Um, Michael Vincent was 23 years old, and he was found in Lafouche Parish. So this is a new parish, right? Before you know, it was he St. was St. Charles, Charles and Jefferson. Jefferson, right? So he was found in January of 2000. Um, he was also a black male. Kenneth Randolph was 20 years old, and he was found in Lafouche Parish in October of 2002, also a black male. Um, Anoka Jones was 26 years old and was also found in October of 2002, but in St. Charles Parish. So that's the same month. Yeah. Um, he was also a black male. And if you look, if you look at the times, like he was going every couple of months, and then he went um, quiet for a, over two years. Right. So, so from January of 2000 until October of 2002. Yeah. Right. So I don't know. What, so maybe what's going on two in his life. So maybe two in one month. It was like you know he got back in the game. Right. I don't. So I don't know what was going on in his life that he was you know quiet because. I don't think he has kids, you know, because a lot of people... God, I hope not. He doesn't. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Um, because a lot of serial killers will, like, you know, go quiet for a while when they get married or have kids. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like the Something Golden, monumental. Right. Like the Golden State Killer quit quit killing for a couple years or, or quit... I don't know if he was killing at that time or if he was still just... Being shady? No, he was... um raping he was the east area rapist too and the golden state killer Mm -hmm. so previously he was just raping people not i say just that sounds bad but he wasn't he hadn't he wasn't murder yet yeah um but you know he quit raping people and they figured out that the years that once they knew who it was what was his name something d'angelo i can't remember his first name who the golden state killer really was it d'angelo yeah i'm pretty sure what was his name did you look it up? Yeah, I did. They caught him, though, right? Yes. Like, recently. Like, in 2018. Yeah, that old man. I remember his Joseph name. Joseph D'Angelo. Oh. Joseph James D'Angelo. Yeah, that's him. Um, but anyway, they once they identified him as the Golden State Killer, you know, in the East Area Rapist, um, he quit raping for around the years that his kids were born. Oh. So, apparently... And that that apparently is, like, you know, people have stuff going on. You know, I guess they're distracted, so they don't need to kill. Um, He's got a lot of freaking victims. Right. Anyway, back to our story. Um, So, victim 13 was Detrell... I hope I'm saying this right. Detrell Woods. Um, he was reported missing on May 24, 2003. He was 19 years old, and his body was found two days later in a sugarcane field in Terrebonne Parish with his bicycle. Hmm. Yeah. Um, he was also a black male. Yeah, so you can actually see the site where another victim's body was left uh-huh. from where Charles' body was oh, okay. discovered. I, I, get you, I get what you're saying now. I thought you meant, like, yeah, like a spot in the grass, but you mean, like, no, the like, location. No, like, so Charles' yeah, yeah. body was in a sugarcane field. It was left, and that's where it was left, and, um... Not far from there were some mini storage units, and um, Dominique apparently found a unit that was unlocked and unoccupied, so he just opened it, placed the victim, the victim's body into the unoccupied unit, and shut the door. 
and the victim's body would not be found for about three weeks. Jeez. So that just gave detectives, you know, they had issues identifying the body initially due to the state of decomp. And eventually the body was identified as Michael Barnett, who was the first white victim. Uh Well, white male victim, but they were all males, but... Um, he was 21 years old and they found his body in, or he was murdered in October of 2004, obviously also in Terrible Parish, if you could see the news. Mm-hmm. And, and they, that in the documentary, if you go watch it, they stood in the sugarcane field where Detrell's body was found and you can literally see, it's like a couple, like yard, like, like a couple football fields away. Yeah. It's crazy. Um... So, Michael was apparently known to have issues with drugs in the past, so that made it really difficult for detectives to, you know, track his life. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, in his interview or his confession, um, Dominique told detectives about his encounter with Michael, and now, whether or not you want to believe him, I don't know. I mean, he did just confess, like, I mean, he told them everything. Well, I say everything, but... yeah. He was very... He was very forthcoming. I don't know... Excuse me. I don't... I don't know how much of what he said is true. Yeah. You know? But... So, he told detectives or investigators that Michael approached him outside of a store and told him that he needed to make some money. So, Dominique went on to tell police that, just like the rest of his victims, Michael told him if he didn't pay him that he would call the police and they would put Dominique in jail. So he's putting the blame on the victim. Pay him for what? Wait, what? Well, okay, so Michael came... I I was trying to be diplomatic about it, but Michael came up to Ronald, Dominique, and said that he needed to make some money. And Mm -hmm. Dominique was like, okay. Because he apparently was paying a lot... Like I said previously, he would try to pay a lot of these men for sex. Right. So, you know, Dominique told police that... Eventually, Michael said, if you don't pay me, he's going to call the police and they'd put him in jail. They'd put you in jail. So, Dominique panicked and choked Michael with an extension cord until he stopped moving. Then, he put Michael in his truck and went to the mini storage place that I you know, previously mentioned. And he said, told police that he found an unlocked unit, dragged Michael's body into the unit, shut the door, and left. Okay, I have major issues with this. Uh, yeah. If you panicked and strangled him, why did you have an extension cord, like, in your truck? Right. Do, do people just generally have extension cords in their truck? I mean, I don't. I don't <laughs> keep an extension... I have a truck, and I don't keep an extension cord in my truck. I mean, like, it, I feel like in most of... And we haven't gotten to this yet, but in most of his murders, he was in his vehicle with the victims. So, like, he just had an extension... I mean, this is murder number 14, so I think at that point he just carried supplies with him. Right. But I feel like having that extension cord is premeditation. Oh, yeah. No, I mean... Because you don't just keep an extension... I mean, and that's all her... In my opinion, they're all premeditation, except the first one, probably. But, you know... Right. So, um, so victim number 15 was 46-year-old Larry Matthews who is the oldest victim, he was um, murdered in October 2004, the same month as Michael Barnett that we talked about, 
His body was found in St. Charles Parish, and he was a black male. Um, victim number 16 was the second white male of his victims. Um, Leon Lorette was 22 years old, and his he was murdered in February of 2005 in Terrebonne Parish. In April of 2005, the body of 31-year-old August Watkins was found in some brush next to a side road off of Highway 90 in Lafouche Parish. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually found by a couple of people who were searching for their missing loved one, and they just happened to come across his body. Oh, no. I know. Yeah, his brother was interviewed in the documentary Bayou Blue, and it was so sad. Like, it broke my heart. Like, he was just... I mean, he talks about how much he misses him and how much, like, he wishes he could just call him and tell him about his day and, like, Mm -hmm. how that he, you know, just how he should be here still. Mm -hmm. You know, and he said he even saw his brother, like, a couple days before he died and he checked on him and was like, hey, how you doing? Like, you need any money? Like, you good? You Mm -hmm. know? And his brother told it, you know, August told him, no, like, I'm good. I don't need anything. And that was the last time he ever saw his brother because he was murdered a couple days later. So I just want to clear this up. Um... When you say they were found in St. Charles Parish, or found in Terrebonne, found in Lafouche, did the murders occur there too, or did he transport bodies? I'm not sure exactly. But they didn't clarify. Yeah, they didn't really clarify. That's just where the bodies were found. Terrebonne and Lafouche is a, a, a little drive from yeah. Jefferson or St. Charles. Yeah, I'm um, not really sure. Hmm. Or maybe he just expanded his hunting grounds. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. Um... That's a that's a uh, good question. I'm not really sure, and I feel like I should know that. Yeah, I feel like I should know that, but I don't, so, you know, my bad. I stumped you. Yeah, you did. Um, so, victim number 18, we're up to 18 now, uh, was another white male. So, I think this was the third yeah, white male mm-hmm. um, named Kurt Cunningham. He was 23 years old. And his body was found in April of 2005 in Lafouche Parish. Um, then Alonzo Hogan was 28 years old and was found in St. Charles Parish. Um, he was murdered he, in July of 2005, and he was a black male. And in August of 2005, um, actually not long before Hurricane Katrina hit, wow. the body yeah. of 17-year-old Wayne Smith... Jeez who was a black male, was found in a bayou um, in Terrebonne Parish about five feet from the bank, floating face down. So that was his second youngest Right, he was 17. Um, Investigators were processing the crime scene for about five hours before they were able to get a positive identification that the body actually was that of Wayne Smith. It's a shame we don't have, like, like a lot of information on him, on any of these victims. Right. Um, you know, um, had he had he been listed as a missing person? Well, he was um, picked up from a convenience store, apparently, and Dominique actually followed him home from the convenience store, which was um, two streets over from his house. Um, and he followed him two streets from the convenience store to Wayne's house so he could drop his bike off. And then he got in the car with Dominique. And Wayne's family was actually interviewed in the documentary, so there is a little bit more about him. Um, yeah, like, his family was wondering where he was, you know, because he was supposed to be home that night, and they were looking for him, uh-huh. but I want to say they found his body, like, the next day, like, they didn't even have a chance to, to file yeah. a missing persons report, but they knew something was wrong, because he would just not 
he never just didn't come home. Let me say this as a public service announcement because it's a a myth that a lot of people believe. You do not have to be missing for 24 hours to report somebody missing. Oh, really? No, you do not. Really? Yep. Oh, that's good to know. Yep. I guess they'll take you more seriously if it's after 24 hours, but I didn't know. No, that is, I don't know where that came from. Maybe it used to be that way, but in my experience, the department I worked for, we did not. If oh. Even if... Even if it was a child who frequently ran away, we still took them and we still put them into the National Crime Information Center. Um, okay. it, it, it was quite aggravating. I'm, I'm not. I'm going to be honest. Um, but you know, we're like, here we go again, and then two hours later, we're removing him from the, mm-hmm. that same database. But well, at least you put you took it seriously. Yeah, you know, we've talked about a lot of cases where mm-hmm. kids or previous runaways, and you know, authorities. Like, who didn't who, take who it am I to? True. To yeah. say right. it isn't real this time. But yes, you do not have to okay. be missing for 24 hours. That's good to know. Um, hmm. Yeah. Victim number 21 was Chris DeVille, who was 40 years old. Um, and he was found in Assumption Parish. So this is a different parish than we've had. Um, he was found in September of 2005. Um, he was also a black male. Um, and Nicholas Pellegrin was 21 years old. And he was found in Lafouche Parish in November of 2005, and he was a white male. So he differed again. Um, and his case was a little different than the other ones. Uh-huh. We have a little bit more on him. Um, he had previous contact with Dominique before he was murdered. Right. Yes. And according to detectives, he was the only victim that they're aware of who had any prior contact with him. Um, like just a previous run-in or that he knew him? Well, so a few days before Nick went missing, um, he was doing some construction work on a friend's house. Um, and he ran into Dominique, who was reading like the ele- electric meters mm-hmm. at one of the houses that Nick was working on. Um, so, you know, according to Dominique in his confession, um, him and Nick started talking, struck up a conversation, and he got Nick's phone number. And um, on the night that Dominique went to pick Nick up, he stopped at a payphone and called Nick to let him know that he was on his way. And, you know, like I said, this is different. According to the detectives, that's the only case, or the only one of his victims that... I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Like, what did he tell him? Like, you know, like, Mm -hmm. was Nicholas a gay man? Or... Um, Yeah, I'm gonna... Like, um... I mean, it was... More than likely premeditation on Dominique's part. Oh, yet again. But, yeah, for sure. Um, And, you know, that's the only case that detectives know where they had, like, previous previous contact. contact. Yeah. Like, you know, where he somewhat knew the victim instead of just randomly picking up phone number. They talked plenty enough for them to. And Nicholas's mother and sister are also in the documentary, and according to them, you know, the news media portrayed Nick as this drug addict, this troubled young man who was homosexual, and they were, you know, really upset by this because the media was just talking about their loved one and saying all these things about him, you know, all these ugly things after he was murdered by a serial killer, you know, and, and they they swear that he was not homosexual. They may have just grouped him along with his other victims. Yeah, yeah the media might have just grouped him with all the other gay victims, and I mean, but I... I mean, I agree with them being upset. Like, I feel like a lot of times the media will just drag these victims' names through the mud. Mm-hmm. And, 
like and they when you focus on a victim's background like especially in the case of like if they're a drug addict or they're a prostitute or like they they have done some bad things in their life like it doesn't matter they're still a person yeah, you but know? It, 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 I think with this particular killer, it is relevant because so many of his victims did live that lifestyle. Right, right. But I mean, I can understand why his family was upset about it. Was right, by right. It. Um, and so, um, Dominique's last victim was Christopher Sutterfield, and he was a white male. He was 27 years old, and he was found in Iberville Parish um, in October 2006 and this part's really sad Sutterfield was actually murdered 11 days before DNA came back tying Dominique to these murders so they had DNA on every single victim um I don't think it was every single victim I know it was at least eight victims DNA linked him to at least eight yeah Hmm. So he was murdered only 11 days before DNA wow. would link him. So from a previous crime. Yeah, from other, the other murders, yeah. Like, the DNA wasn't necessarily from, um, well, I mean, I guess it was. It was from all of them. Well, at least eight. At le- well, yeah, but not specifically the DNA from Sutterfield's murder. It could have been. Well, yeah, right. Right, it was right. more than one. Right. So, um... In March of 2005, um, after suspecting there was a serial killer on the loose, um, law enforcement officers from nine different South Louisiana parishes, along with the Louisiana State Police and the FBI, all joined forces forces and assembled a task force, you know, to try to hunt him down. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was crazy. This was also in the documentary. So, Bill Null is a probation and parole officer, and he was a member of the task force. So, he went to the task force uh, with some information that he got from one of his parolees. Wow. So, he was supervising the parole of a man named Ricky Wallace. Okay. Um, Ricky's mother, you know, called Bill and told him that Ricky was having nightmares about being tied up and that she thought he might have been involved with the serial killer. What? Yes. So, Ricky was interviewed for the documentary Bayou Blue, Uh and according to Ricky, he was walking down the street near a dog park um, when he noticed a vehicle pass him two or three times, and um, the third or fourth time, you know, the man stopped, and he showed Ricky a picture of a woman, and the guy in the vehicle told, you know, um, the guy in the vehicle told Ricky, um, you know, hey, you want to make some money, and so... Ricky got in the truck, and the man started heading to Bayou Blue. So, was he kind of acting like a pimp? Uh, I don't know. A reverse pimp? (laughs) I guess. Um, So, you know, once they got to where they were going, the guy told Ricky that he had to get undressed, get tied up, get wrapped in a towel, um, and lay on his stomach. What? And, yeah. And this was all from Ricky. Like, Ricky was in the... In the documentary. Okay. So at this point, this is what somebody told him he had to do. Yes. So, okay. You know, Ricky told the guy, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Okay, so it didn't actually happen. No. But he he was having the nightmares about it, about being told to do it. Yeah, so he told the guy, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. So the man's, like, trying to talk him into it, and, you know, Ricky still refused, so they started to argue in the trailer, and, uh, you know, the man didn't want to take Ricky back, and... According to Ricky, he used force, not, I'm 
not sure exactly. He just said I used force. I'm assuming. He was just being aggr- really aggressive. Yeah. Whether it was I used. I'm not sure exactly what yeah. that means, but he said he um, he used force to convince the man to bring him back home, and he said that he didn't realize the man he had been in contact with was a serial killer. Wow. So he never said anything originally, like when it happened, uh-huh. until a guy that he had known for a long time was murdered. What? And I think it was Chris DeVille, mm-hmm. maybe. But so when that person was murdered, that's when he decided to come forward because he knew that that, that was the same man. Yep. Right. Like he just, you know, he said he just had that feeling. Like he just, he knew, like it had to be him. Was he the key, the key in this case? Yeah, so, like, it turned out to be true, and the man, you know, was none other than Ronald Dominique. So, you know, Bill, the parole officer, picked, after talking to Ricky's mom, you know, picked Ricky up and listened to his story, and, you know, he said, he told Ricky, you know, I want an official statement. So, Ricky agreed, and on the way to the police station, Bill asked Ricky if he could show him where this guy lived. And Ricky was like, yeah. And so they drove past the home of Ronald Dominique. No way. Right. So, um, that was just crazy. He's lucky that he, you know, escaped. Yeah, I mean, so, y'all, if a, if a car passes me one time and I get that those hairs on my neck, I'm, I'm memorizing that license plate. Right. Or so, at least make a model. Now I want to talk about um, Ronald Dominique's apprehension. So, he was arrested on December 1st, 2006, at a homeless shelter in Houma, Louisiana. Um, apparently, just days before his arrest, he had moved into the bunkhouse shelter in Houma uh, from his sister's home. Um, you know, most residents of the homeless shelter described him as odd, you know, but none of them ever suspected that he was a serial killer. That goes back to me saying he was socially awkward. Right. Um... Just a quick sidebar. Um, so, in most of the videos I watched from like different news outlets of him, you know, they show the people being walked out of the police station or being put in the police car, you know, after uh-huh. interviewing them. Um, it was one of those things, you know, and he's walking with a cane and he's like sort of hunched over. And at one point, like the officers are holding him up. What? Like he could barely walk. Like I'm not sure if he was doing this on purpose. Like to make people feel bad for him, or to make but he him... didn't use those things in everyday life. Like his cane. No. Like I don't know. I, I don't know if he was brutality. trying to make people feel bad for him or believe he wasn't capable of raping and murdering anyone. Maybe he was. Um. I mean, I'm just. Or if he was really there. sick. I don't know. Or maybe he wasn't complying with all. I mean, that doesn't really make I, sense, though. Yeah, but. I mean, maybe was, they would. Honestly, it was painful to watch. Like, it was uncomfortable to watch. I'll have to send you the videos. Like, was he trying for an Oscar, you think? Or. Well, I don't know. But I did. I want to say I read somewhere that he had a heart attack or something around, like, right before he got arrested. So it could be from that. I don't know. I don't know. It was weird. Anyway, so investigators quickly. They learned that. Um, Dominique lived in Bayou Blue in Terrebonne Parish, um, in a camper that was behind his, um, sister's property, but he also had another camper that not many people knew about, and the second camper was his kill site. What? And where many of his victims were murdered. And his camper was about two miles outside of, like, the middle of Homa. Uh Uh-huh. But it was also secluded enough to where, like... You couldn't, he could murder his victims and no one would know. Like, no one would hear them scream. 
So when they did a search warrant, did they find what they needed to find? I don't know. That'd have been wicked. Yeah. So um, on December third, two thousand six, at two o nine a.m., Ronald Joseph Dominique gave a statement to investigators confessing to raping and murdering all twenty three men. What? Yes. These these interviews were difficult to listen to because he's like crying. Or breathing heavily and he just sounds like if I'm being honest he almost sounds like a woman it's it's weird it, if you watch the documentary they play some of it uh-huh. it's and he's hard to understand sometimes and I mean maybe he's just realizing what his life's about to turn in like he was like emotional yeah yeah he was emotional I don't know and oh so he, he was remorseful I don't know he I don't know if he was remorseful or if it was a show but he mumbled and he stuttered a lot too uh-huh. so I don't know so, but when investigators originally picked him up, they were like, no way. This is not him. This is not the right person. You know, they were thinking. He didn't. He looked harmless almost. Yeah. They were like, this yeah. is just going to be another person we have to interview just to cross off our list. But Don't touch a book by its cover. Right. But, I mean, after interviewing him and eventually the DNA hit, it became clear, like, yeah, this is the serial killer they we're looking for. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> your boy Ricky could have easily picked him up out of a photo lineup, too. Yeah. So, investigators started interrogating him by asking him about the men found in in, uh, New Orleans area in Jefferson Parish, and um, his original response was that he killed in self-defense. Oh, we've heard this before. Right. That he believed these men were going to rape and kill him. So, he took it upon himself to overpower them while he had the chance and accidentally killed them Where, that, that is so contradictory it's right. died and funny like self-defense and because accidental right no it doesn't work like that dude right so uh, that 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 bothers me so they asked him okay tell us how do you lure your victims and like i said we'd get more into it so he admitted that one of the ruses that he used was like with ricky you know the picture of a female and offering for the victim to have sex with her mm-hmm. um you know, and he went on to tell detectives that he would have conversations with potential victims and kind of size them up and determine if they were heterosexual or homosexual and which one they were would decide which ruse he would use. Yeah. Right. So if he thought the potential victim was heterosexual, he would use the ruse with the picture of the woman, you know, like we talked about. But if he thought the potential victim was homosexual, he would ask if they wanted to have sex with him, sometimes for money. Um, and he would tell his heterosexual victims that the woman in the picture had been previously raped. So he had to tie them up before he brought her in. That's that's mm, disgusting. Uh, it is, but I mean, I guess people would believe that. I, I don't know who, I mean, but I guess that's how he got people to believe it. I don't know. That's uh, and, disturbing. You know, but that was just a continuation of his ruse. I mean, once the victims were tied up, a woman obviously didn't come into the room. Instead, they were raped, then murdered by Dominique, you know? Ugh, that's gross. And according to Dominique, he would meet men and have sexual encounters in his car, most of the time for money, and in almost all of his accounts, after he and the victim had fooled around a little bit, According to him, his victim would pull out a knife or a weapon of some kind and threaten to rape him 
which scared him so that he would react and choked, choke or attack the victim and murder them. That is a load of crap. Yeah, it like, is. Why would the victim just all of a sudden pull a knife and threaten to rape him out of the blue when they were just fooling around Guilty conscience. Before? That's what, that's like, that total. makes no sense to me. No. None. And this, this reminds me a lot and of what are another the chan- case. And what the of. hell are, like, what are the chances of, of it happening that many times? Yes. That's what I was saying. That I mentioned that in Taylor's case. Right. Like, so <laughs> next we're going to talk about, um, you know, his sentencing and I would, I would say trial, but. Spoiler alert, there was no trial. Um, um, once you confess to all that, it kind of... Right, there's no need for a trial. I mean, so Mark Rhodes, um, the assistant district attorney for Terrebonne Parish, met with the eight families of the victims who were murdered were in his jurisdiction, jurisdiction right? Mm-hmm. And told them, you know, he usually doesn't make guarantees, but he could guarantee them three things. One, that Ronald Dominique would be convicted... Two, that he would get the death penalty. And three, that it would be about 12 to 14 years before he was executed. Those are some pretty uh, stiff promises. Right. Those are some very serious uh, promises. Um, But the families decided not to pursue the death penalty, not out of compassion for him, for Dominique, but because they wanted the worst possible penalty for him. And according to, you know, Mark Rhodes, the ADA, Dominique was scared of jail, so mm. spending 30 years in Angola would be very hard for him. You know, like he said, he murdered the men because he didn't want to go back to jail. Yeah, and... So, so um, killing him is it's the easy him the easy way, easy way out. Yeah. The families of the victims were interviewed, and some of them said they didn't want the death penalty because they wanted him to sit in jail and suffer. And think about what he did. Yeah. But according to Nicholas Pellegrin's mom and sister, they wanted the death penalty for Dominique and you know they said in the documentary that they didn't agree to the life sentences um but you know Nick's mom made a really good point she was like you know um how do I know that Dominique is really in Angola like how do I know that he's really in general population and not in his own room watching tv by himself you know kept safe from you know the other inmates and you know because you don't know you really he, he could he could be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and then he's got he's got opportunities to appeal, right? Appeal, 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 and if he's dead, he doesn't have that option, like right? Yeah. So I mean, and she said, you know, she doesn't think he's been in general population because she believes if he was, somebody, she said, you know, somebody probably would have killed him by now. I mm-hmm. mean, somebody like maybe related to one of his twenty three victims, you know, but so. That should be public information, though, I would think. Yeah. So, in order to avoid the death penalty, um, Dominique accepted the deal with prosecutors to plead guilty to um, eight counts of first-degree murder. On September 23, 2008, District Judge Randy Bethencourt sentenced Dominique to eight consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. And wait, wait, wait. So Dominique accepted a deal with the prosecutors for to avoid the death penalty? So he did want to go to jail? I mean, I guess... I don't know. So he didn't He didn't want to die? I guess not. When initially he didn't want to spend life. Right. Go back to jail. Right, I guess... Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Um, and I found pictures of this, you know, when he um, was sentenced... I found pictures of his sentencing on September 23rd, 2008. I will 
post these pictures and I'm going to send them to you right now. But I'm telling you, he looks like Danny DeVito as the penguin in oh freaking Batman Returns. He does. Da, am I lying? He looks, oh my He God. looks like Danny he's DeVito like even as the penguin. he's over like a little waddling penguin. Oh he God. looks like a penguin. The penguin. I'm serious. Oh my gosh. <sighs> Anyways. Um, so, according to the ADA, Mark Rhodes, you know, he said, in Louisiana, the sentence for murder is life without the benefit of probation, parole, or suspension. So here... In Louisiana, no one gets out when they're given a life sentence. Like, there is no getting out for him. So, you know, like we said, he was convicted and sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences. So, he's going to die in Angola. Wait, so in Louisiana, no one gets out when they're given a life sentence, even if they try to appeal? Unless they win their appeals. Yeah. But, no. No, there is no parole. There is no parole so, or probation in Louisiana with a life sentence. So, if you get life, it's without the possibility yes. of parole. Yes. In, in every case. Yes. Unless in otherwise appealed. Right. Right. Good to know. Yeah. So, um, just a couple. Two points for the boot. <laughs> right. One of the only good things about Louisiana. <laughs> Second only to the food. Right. <laughs> um, so just a couple, like, wrap-up final thoughts. Um, Dominique is now 55 years old. Oh, and wow. he's current. he's about to be 56 in January. Um, but he's currently serving out, you know, his life sentences at... Angola. Have fun with that, because that sounds terrible. Speaking of Angola, and it's a story of a topic, but I really want to go to the rodeo in October. Might have to do that. He might be there selling some stuff. And I ain't gonna buy for him. Nope. You ain't getting no extra ramen noodle packets on me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we kind of touched on this, but for some reason, his case hasn't really gotten much media coverage outside of Louisiana. And I mean, I'm Honestly, inside Louisiana, I've never heard of it. Right. Like I said, I didn't know much about it, and I live here. Um, I'm not really sure why that is. Like, I've mentioned it to a lot of people, even people who live out that way, and they don't know who he is. Yeah. That's crazy to me. And I don't... And he's not that old. No. He's... he's I mean, he's... Like, a, he's, he's your 55. parents. Your, your, he's my dad's age. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, he is my dad's age. My dad will be 55 this year. Yeah. Um, yeah, That's crazy to me. I don't... I don't know. People have speculated that it didn't get much national coverage because it was happening, you know, down the bayou. <laughs> what Which, are you eating for? <laughs> I mean, it, that can seem like a whole different world sometimes, you know? Oh, it truly is. And others have speculated that because some of his victims were living high-risk lifestyles. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see me. but um, With, like, drugs, prostitution, homelessness, homelessness, yeah, et cetera, that to tie that... You know, so sometimes society tends not to care so much about those people. True. And they do now. In this day and age, they do. Right. But I can promise you, if it was a bunch of white college students getting murdered, everyone would be talking about it. Right. That's why I asked earlier so if it, it was white or black, the killer. Yeah. And it, I feel like it would have been much more high profile if it was like a bunch of college co-eds getting murdered. Or if it was, like a, in the case or if it was a DTL, a black man killing a bunch of white people. Right. I mean, I don't know. It just, I don't know. Double don't standard, yeah. that's it. I mean, I don't understand, like, why society is the way it is. I know, it sucks. Yeah, but um, anyway, so in the end, Dominique confessed to 23 murders and was given eight life sentences for the murders of eight men, 
Which, like I said, I guess that makes sense because why put the family through the agony of a trial for each one of the victims when he was willing yeah. to confess? And, right. And so he's currently, like I said, he's serving his eight life sentences at Angola and he will likely die there. Not likely. He will. He's going to die in Angola. Hopefully soon. That sounds terrible, but whatever. Yeah. You I'm, killed 24 I'm, I'm going to the Angola, for, uh, Angola prison rodeo. You going to take him out? No. <laughs> I really do. And I told my parents that a couple of weeks ago. And they were talking, oh, because they went visit um, Louisiana Tech with my mm. younger brother. Okay. And I was like, y'all might as well visit Angola all the way out there. And my dad's like, we already passed it up. I'm like, oh. And I was like, I want to go to the rodeo. Mm. And he's like, we were just talking about that. So I think we are going to pay a visit. Okay. We, like you said, you might see him out there. I wonder if I can bring a camera. Uh, I don't think they allow any of that. I mean, they're in cages. Like, I'm, oh, that in sounds, cages? That sounds so terrible, y'all. But, like, they sell their... Um, their crafts or whatever they make from like from their cells no 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 like i think they're like more in the yard. i don't know i'm 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 visualizing what i expect but i think they're like in the yard like oh um see i've never been but you know um a couple weeks ago on dateline nbc lester holt spent a couple nights oh, in yeah. angola prison and i wanted to watch it i watched I the little watch yeah it looks super like it's like 28 acres yeah, and it was huge. I had I, I don't know much history about Angola, but it is um, I think it used to be a plantation with slaves. So because hmm. I don't think that. the name of it is actually Angola. It's Louisiana State Penitentiary, right. and I think Angola used to be the plantation. So oh. that's where that comes from. Okay. So a little tidbit, a little bit of knowledge that I usually don't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the case of Ronald Dominique, the Bayou serial killer. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast, follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomeGirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions. 